Terrific, thanks. Well, I hope, uh, first of all, that everyone is well and dealing with uh, with the seasonal uh, seasonal affect disorder of short days and cold days uh, successfully, as well as the pre-existing condition of lockdowns and coronavirus and, and whatnot. Um, there's been a lot of movement in the last six weeks or so in BDS space and related to BDS. And I want to go over, uh, and, and of course, related to the election as well. And I want to go over um, some of these some of these issues, some of which uh, I wrote about in last month's uh, BS Monitor, and some things uh, that are fairly new. And, and I also, I'd like to conclude by making a few what I hope are judicious predictions about where things are going in. So uh, with regard to the, the pre-election space or, or shape of BDS, the most important development was Secretary of State uh, Pompeo's trip to Israel in which uh, he declared, among other things, that uh, products manufactured, that the U.S. would regard products manufactured in Israeli communities across the green line, so-called, be labeled made in Israel. And this was a major, uh, a major marker thrown down with respect to European states, in particular in the EU, who have been quite adamant about labeling so-called settlement goods as, as being made in Israeli settlements in occupied territories or uh, whatever the language in particular um, they were going to use. And uh, the, the idea that the U.S. would repudiate its position um, is, I think, very important, both internationally and for the future. He was also quoted as uh, describing the BDS movement specifically as a cancer, which is a, a, an explicit, um, an explicit and not, I think, <laughs> inaccurate kind of statement that uh, that has, at least for the moment, the, the weight of the U.S. government. Um, now, this is th these statements are aimed uh, towards the international community, and have changed, I think, the geopolitical environment for BDS at least somewhat, particularly with respect to to Europe. Um, but they've also set uh, certain kinds of parameters for the uh, what appears to be the incoming Biden administration. So, I want to talk. A little bit about the results of the election, the implications of the election. Um, the the BDS caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was was enlarged with the addition of at least two members, but there were very mixed results for progressives elsewhere and Republicans. Uh, Republican candidates across the country, uh, a large number of seats, which is still being, I think, determined in, in, in certain races. Certainly here in New York, uh, there isn't even a final count for the presidential election, but, but um, conclusion in New York State. All eyes are focused on the Georgia Senate uh, runoff election, which pits two Democrats against two Republicans. One of the Democrats is is, I think, 
quite fairly characterized as uh, an anti-Israel activist. Um, and, and really one of the, the most interesting developments is that uh, progressives and anti-Israel activists have been frozen out of senior positions in the um, incoming Biden administration. So the, the, the prospective, let's call it, um, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor and um, Director of National Intelligence, three of the most important senior positions in the uh, in the government have all gone to Obama administration loyalists, sort of second tier uh, of Obama loyalists. There are a number of progressive characters, um, and I'm forgetting her name uh, at this point, but one of whom was appointed as the uh, White House press secretary, who, who are uh, anti-Israel activists. And one of the, one of the clear tensions that that emerged before but very much so now after the election is pressure from progressives both on personnel and uh, regarding policy in a Biden administration uh, on, a, on a wide variety of issues not least of all is uh, is Israel and um, a number of the squad members have expressed preemptive disappointment with with Biden for not appointing more explicit progressives. That is to say left-wing uh, left individuals from um, democratic socialists or from, from various uh, progressive uh, policy organizations to uh, middle and certainly senior positions in, in the government. Uh, so the question arises, and I don't really have an answer to this, is, is whether Biden is, is trapped by the Trump administration's uh, moves on Israel generally and, and its latest moves related to BDS, namely um, explicit opposition to, to BDS, um, calling it a cancer. Um, and that, along with many other uh, Trump administration moves, like moving the, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, rescinding a lot would uh, entail a very high political price for, for Biden. It's difficult for me to imagine at this point. What is, I think, much more, more likely is that... Uh, Pointees to uh, to the State Department and uh, the Department of Education, which uh, have been mobilized against uh, anti-Israel bias and anti-Semitism generally, that there there may be selective or or reduced enforcement of Trump administration guidelines. One of the things that uh, that the Biden administration announced first off was that uh, a Trump rule banning uh, critical race theory training in U.S. government entities would be rescinded. And uh, banning trainings on, on U.S. government entities and 
entities funded by the US government, which includes in many contexts, colleges and universities. And this is frankly where a lot of uh, the BDS movement and anti-Semitism is coming from at the moment. Which brings us, I think, to the campus situation, <coughs> excuse me, campus and, and related environments. And that's the emerging political controversy or the renewed political controversy over the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism, which includes demonization of Israel as a criteria. And this had been adopted about a year ago by the Trump administration and the Department of Education as one of its uh, guidelines, you might say, as an indicator of, of anti-Semitism, which attracted a great deal of opposition at the time. Um, but what's interesting is that in the last couple of months, um, a number of universities in the United States, Northeastern, Florida State, some others, both the student governments and the universities themselves have adopted this definition as, as one of their guidelines for campus behavior and comportment. Now, in this has also happened in, in Britain, where lots of universities now, most recently, I think Warwick and Birmingham, have adopted this definition under pressure by the conservative government of Boris Johnson. The education secretary back, I think in September, got up and said that there would be consequences for universities that did not adopt this definition. What's interesting is that uh, there's here and there are pockets of resistance, um, most notably King, the students at King's College got up and, and voted that this was an unfair restriction on their freedom of speech and, and was unfair to um, pal violated Palestinian rights and a group of uh, intellectuals, so-called and writers wrote a letter, of course, to the Guardian complaining about uh, this, the adoption of this definition. So there's a great deal of, of pushback. Now, in, in Britain, the, the context, I think, is clear that the government is pushing this. Why there should be at least, a, why, why there's more movement, or little movement, let's put it, in the US towards this definition is, and um, I, I don't necessarily see the, the Trump administration having made explicit kinds of pressures in this direction. My, my thought is that some of these things are coming internally on the part of university administrations and student governments as a, as a reaction or backlash to some of the excesses of the BDS movement in the past year. Uh, and it remains to be seen where this is where this is going to go. But one of the most interesting phenomena um, related to this, and I think one of the most distressing phenomena, is the emergence of uh, of, a, of a major block of Jewish left Jewish organizations who are opposed to um, using anyone using this definition, colleges and universities universities and other settings. And these include J Street, um, 
which is, I think, uh, which declared its its opposition about a year ago, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, and more recently, the New Israel Fund and Americans for Peace Now. And the opposition is based on what you might call uh, sort of familiar First Amendment uh, kinds of uh, grounds, uh, certainly for, for JVP and the further left um, uh, elements of this group grouping, um, it's it's on the basis of an explicit call for uh, to support Palestinian rights, and that the idea of opposing uh, anti-Israel bias and anti-Semitism um, is unfair to Palestinians. That uh, the implication being that this is this is in effect a part of a legitimate part of of their rhetoric and behavior. Um, so we'll see where this goes, and, and unfortunately, this has begun to be played out in some of the core institutions of the American Jewish community, um, like uh, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. And while I don't expect organizations to be expelled or otherwise uh, sanctioned on on this basis, uh, it, it's clear that it's clear that anti-Semitism is a major, what constitutes anti-Semitism is a major issue within the American Jewish community. Now, it's also legitimate to ask how representative any of these organizations that are supporting, um, or let's put it this way, representative of the organizations that oppose the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, how representative are they of the Jewish community or portions of the Jewish community? I think not very, <clears throat> but they're certainly vocal and their appeal is aimed specifically towards particular sectors, progressive Jews, younger Jews, um, and so on. So it's an unfortunate fracture that has been deliberately introduced into an already fractured American Jewish community. And this will, this will only continue to be a problem and be exploited in, in the future. So let me make a couple of, I think, cautious predictions about where things, where things are and where things are going. Uh, as I said, with respect, <clears throat> pardon me, with, to the Biden administration, and its policies towards uh, BDS, I, I don't sense that this is a high priority at the moment, that the political costs are, are high for treating Israel in, in a particular way, but that at the administrative level, the deep state level, uh, you might say, which resisted uh, quite explicitly, lots of um, Trump administration policies and, and directives. I, I think that uh, a certain level of greater tolerance of BDS will will return, specifically in the State Department and its treatment of Israeli-Palestinian issues and Palestinian groups, and the Department of Education with respect to uh, the treatment of Jews and supporters of Israel on campus. To a certain extent, though, I, I, 
I would argue that BDS is being pushed back to campus and progressive politics. And these are very large domains, certainly. And the campus domain, I, I think, is the most problematic and fraught and dangerous of them all because it comes at a time when uh, campuses are rapidly changing. And uh, not to belabor the point, but I think we're all aware that uh, wokeness, um, kind of racialized framework, um, which purports to oppose white uh, supremacy and um, and by extension, the the many of the foundations of uh, the American Republic and the American experience, um, it, campus wokeness is very much expanding, and the syllogistic equation of Jews as white as vic and Palestinians as black as victims has very much been established and is very much being um, emphasized in the BDS movement's rhetoric and its alliances with other campus and, and progressive organizations. So I think we're going to see uh, become or, or emphasized as the basis of BDS arguments on campus against Israel. Um, and it, we know that it's already present both explicitly and implicitly in critical race theory training for students and staff members at colleges and universities. And unfortunately, it's very much present in <clears throat> K through 12 kinds of um, education as well. The, the, uh, the California uh, common, common core, uh, you know, ethnic studies curriculum, sorry. Uh, which was rejected by the governor, vetoed by, by the governor, but it really, which exists in lots of different forms, is, is just the tip of the iceberg. And more and more reports uh, are emerging from all over the country at all levels of K through 12 or uh, education about this, uh, about this problem in which Jews are characterized as white people with privilege and therefore racists by definition until they give up their racism uh, through various kinds of uh, repentance means. But I also think that there are going to be unpredictable backlashes. And because, because they're unpredictable, I, I will refrain from specific predictions. But um, as I've said many times on these calls, in the past, the political economics of American colleges and universities are in a terrible situation, and that will play uh, play into the their future and and into uh, into how vast numbers of the American populace treat um, higher education in particular. Uh, one example is the, which is unrelated to BDS, but which has implications. Um, calls which are heard yet again to, um, to uh, discharge 
student loans uh, to forgive, I'm sorry, forgive student loans, which is a trillion and a half or $2 trillion, which have been immediately met with rejection from lots of different quarters um, because why should class taxpaying people be paying off the loans of students who went to colleges and universities and to put it disparagingly got degrees in basket weaving and wind dancing or or what have you um so because class is the most important issue in american society today i think that bds will will be playing along these kinds of uh these kinds of avenues in in interesting and unpredictable unpredictable ways and it's something to watch in the future so let me stop there and um let me open up the floor to whatever comments and and questions that people might have Great, thank you, Alex, as always. Um, so we already have a few questions. So let's start with the questions first, and then um, we have more time. We can talk about a few other issues. Uh, so let me uh, start with, um, again, uh, as Alex mentioned, we're now opening up the virtual floor for questions. So if you have questions, uh, please raise your virtual hand or type in your questions and I'll be able to read them. Um, we'll start with Charles's question, Charles Feynman. Uh, and he wants you to comment on uh, on Bahrain's waffling on the labeling of Israeli goods. Any comments on that as a result, I guess, let me add, vis-a-vis -vis the Abraham Accords and in general what's going on with Israeli-UAE uh, relations? Well, I think that uh, the in the larger sense, Israeli uh, relations with the UAE and Gulf states uh, of course, brings out into the open in a formal way <clears throat> relationships that have been existing for a very long time. But the enthusiasm from both sides is is fascinating to to watch. There are transportation agreements, there are political agreements, there's development agreements. Uh, I, uh, was it a Bahraini guy or a UAE guy just bought 50% of a Jerusalem um, soccer team? Yes. <clears throat> it's very interesting. And Pal Palestinians are shocked and appalled and, and horrified by, by all this because, in a sense, uh, Gulf states, with the exception of, of Kuwait and Qatar, of course, are, are really um, expressing for the first time how they feel about Palestinians, which is not much, and how they feel about Israel, which is to be fascinated and intrigued um, at, at many different levels. With regard to the Bahrain move, um, they had originally said that they would be importing Israeli goods, distinction between labeling goods made in Israel as opposed to made goods made in the settlements, uh, so so-called. And then they reversed this. And I think that that's a kind of simple political calculation on the, uh, of the, the leadership that they, they just didn't want any more, they didn't want any more trouble than they, than they needed. And I suspect that goods are going to be imported and I don't really know how they're going to be labeled, but I seem to be selling quite well. And that this is a, this is another major power shift uh, with respect to 
regional and global geopolitics, but also which has implications for the for the BDS movement. And if Saudi Arabia, which is far more cautious, could be induced to uh, open some kind of formal relations with Israel, they now allow overflights for the first time, which is a big, which is a big deal. <clears throat> I think that that would change things even further, uh, and it would be in their it would be in their interest, as many people have have argued, um, with respect to the Biden administration, because the Biden administration is gunning for Saudi Arabia, right. and um, so so we'll see. There's you know, a month or so left um, before the party continues. Alex, uh, you there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay, I thought we lost you there. Okay. Uh, were you finishing up a sentence, or did we just? No, no. Uh, I'm, was a, I'm, 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 I'm sorry if I just sort of faded off. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I thought the audio cut. Off. Sorry, I apologize for that. Uh, so let me uh, thank you for that answer. Let's uh, move on to Tamara's question. Uh, so Tamara is asking um, the more about NIF, uh, the New Israel Fund. Uh, is that organization more dangerous than other organizations, uh, and the account of being more heavily subsidized? Uh, I will add to that one, you know, you know, while you're thinking about the answer for that one, <clears throat> maybe you also want to, you know, comment about, uh, uh, which I'm sure our audience has been following this recent uh, panel on, on anti-Semitism, of course, that includes people like Peter Beinart and Rashida Tlaib, uh, and of course, the fact that Beinart came out in, in Tlaib's uh, defense uh, after she made a comment uh, from the river to the sea, uh, invoking the Hamas narrative, uh, and so maybe you want to, you know, look, talk a little bit more about the uh, the fragmentation of the of the left and progressive left organizations and how they're funded and, and their impact regarding BDS at large, which I'm just uh, unpacking further from Tamara's question. The New Israel Fund has been around for a long time. I believe uh, it was founded in 1970. It's been one of the the go-to places for uh, for American Jewish philanthropy, directed at at a variety of social issues, uh, social causes in in Israel. One of the things that's come out really in the last couple of years is the fact that. A number of the organizations that New Israel Fund supports um, are basically BDS organizations, and that uh, groups like Adala and um, and Breaking the Silence that that play a major role in in Israel delegitimization. And even though the organization itself. Um, the guidelines are that it won't it won't support BDS organizations or organizations that have BDS programs, um, but it's you know it, it's it's waffled in a sense on this on this issue. But um, Adala and uh, Gisha and uh, and a number of these others are are very much in in the BDS category. So the idea that they would support where they would reject, the idea that they would reject 
the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of Israel is not entirely uh, unexpected. Um, and and the, their president, David Myers of uh, UCLA, is on record as supporting a selective boycott of Israeli settlements, as, as they're called. Uh, so, you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know enough about the organization's specific grantees or who is funding the organization. There's obviously millions of dollars that's, that's uh, in play here. Um, it's, not, it's not Jewish voice for peace. Um, that, that much is clear, but I think, um, I, I think uh, there are legitimate questions to be asked about its uh, priorities. Now, um, the other question had to do with, the, with this, um, this uh, panel, this anti-Semitism panel, is that, is that right? Right. I mean, the panel itself that related to, you know, uh, and I was adding to that, maybe you want to comment, given the fact that groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and other groups there were sponsoring well, okay. uh, the panel itself. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, drilling down a bit on those organizations uh, and putting on these panels. And of course, you know, Beinart's own involvement with J Street, uh, you know, and, and his defense of Talib. Right. Well, uh, you know, this is a conference um, about anti-Semitism held by um, being run by a series with the participation of a couple of anti-Semites. So it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a, a how-to um, in in a way, and it's being run by by JVP. You know, the argument the argument is, I think, and it, it hasn't taken place yet. I think it's the seventeenth. Is it? Um, the argument is that uh, that is, and it's an old one in a, in a sense that you know Israel is the oldest. Israel is the fundamental source of anti-Semitism because it's so bad, because it treats Palestinians badly, denies Palestinians' rights, it denies Israeli Arabs' rights. Um, the extension of this that's sometimes made is that it it denies uh, Mizrahi. Jews rights that and um, because of all of this bad behavior it it uh, it encourages people to think badly of of Jews as a whole um, which of course is is actually their their core argument that uh, the Jews behaving badly um, and the idea that the idea that you would have um, someone dedicated to the destruction of Israel, like Rashida Talib, who um, was tweeting around the time of the election last week uh, that you know uh, uh, Palestine from the from the river to the sea, um, the the idea that that this person is somehow an expert on on anti-Semitism in this in in an analytical sense or a social sense beyond being an actual purveyor of anti-Israel and anti-Jewish bias. I mean, the whole, the whole panel is sort of set up as a, as a threat that, uh, you know, there will be more anti-Semitism unless Israel is dismantled, um, 
kind of a thing. It's, I find the whole thing <coughs> shocking and appalling and in a sense completely predictable from an organization like, uh, like Jewish Voice for Peace. And the participation. Great, thank you. Uh, by the way, this, yeah, please. Just to clarify, I know, I know we lost you for a second there, but you know, the, the panel is actually going to be on uh, on Tuesday, December fifteenth, uh, and so uh, the fifteenth, yes. So uh, and obviously sponsored by by Binart's own organization, if not now. Uh, you know, uh, the Arab American Institute, Jewish Vote, the Vote, uh, and a variety of organizations part of that coalition. Um, so, uh, but but, all, but again, again, the, the anomaly and of course the, uh, the the disconnect between that reality of the how-to is of course quite telling about what passes for a, a panel. And of course, uh, Beinart above all plays the Jewish card, which is obviously the uh, the problems we face in general about BDS. Um, let me move on to uh, our friend Thomas Levy's question, uh, and I know you touched about it in your in your in your remarks. You were talking about the fact that we had a growth of a few campuses adopting the IRA definition. Uh, so Thomas is asking, really, how important is it for Jewish students to adopt the IRA definition? Uh, you know, when it comes to anti-Semitism, and, and I'm adding to it: is it going to help them? Are we going to see? I mean, you know, to your other comment before, regarding the changes in the uh, administration, uh, we've seen a variety of uh, court cases as a result of Title VI and others. Uh, does, uh, does the adaptation of the IRA definition help students on campus make the case, no matter who's gonna be in office come January 20th, uh, you know, as far as toolbooks? Well, I think it does. Uh, look, campuses, student politics on campus are are very dynamic, <clears throat> and having these kinds of uh, markers laid down by student governments and uh, and by universities puts uh, lays out a, a a map for for students. It doesn't necessarily change behavior on the on the ground all that much but it does potentially in egregious cases open people up to uh to let's call it prosecution or or to to the to the leveling of complaints within whatever kind of uh judiciary framework that uh, that student governments have which I don't have a high regard for, but which does exist, the, the universities themselves. You know, egregious violators could potentially um, have, have their organizations defunded or thrown off campus. Um, on, the other, on the other hand, uh, there's, a, there's a negative aspect to this as well, I think, that because so much of campus politics is, is oppositional in a way, that uh, that uh, that declarations regarding um, you know speech are are there to be defied, and and because this uh, this definition and free speech issues are so contentious uh, in the first place, it's 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 clear to me that at least in some situations it will be a uh, <clears throat> uh, a lightning rod 
for, for criticism. Now, the irony, of course, is that <clears throat> until, until now, you know, uh, not until now, you know, throughout for the past number of years, uh, Palestinian students have been complaining that their free speech rights are being um, shut down, uh, even as they are, you know, shouting down uh, pro-Israel speakers and banging on walls and, you know, forcing, you know, physically forcing pro-Israel students into rooms to be rescued by, by security. And there's been virtually no sanctions leveled against them. They've never been, uh, no one's ever been expelled. Um, no one, no group has ever, maybe a handful of groups have ever been defunded for egregious abuses of, of free speech rights. The Palestinian groups uh, led by Palestine Legal and, and, you know, the legal arm of the BDS movement in the U.S. has been very um, assiduous about uh, claiming that their rights are being violated all, all the time by, by any restrictions on, on speech. And this will only em, empower them uh, further. Jewish students are by and large, fairly, uh, fairly passive or complacent um, and fairly inclined to play by the rules and to play fair. Here and there, it's, it's changing and some groups are different. Groups are different than other groups. And they're, the empowerment of, of Jewish students on campus by the Department of Education, by um, other groups um, uh, have been, has been helpful. But I think it will, there, there won't be any permanent uh, power, power shifts. Um, also because it works, you know, the, the campus environment is, is very much to um, be against um, whiteness and white supremacy. And if Israel and Jews and supporters of Israel are labeled as, as white, um, and white supremacists, then that is a, that's another fundamental shift in, in the power arrangements on, on campus and, and within society as a whole. So it will go, it will go in lots of different, different directions, I think. Great, thank you for that. Um, let's move on to our friend Charles Jacobs question, uh, who's asking, you know, pushing back on the concept that Jews are quote unquote white. Uh, and I'll also add, of course, to our listeners, and of course, Alex, you and I know this, that one of the panelists on the, uh, the quote-unquote infamous panel with Peter Beinart is no other than Mark Lamont Hill uh, here in my backyard in Philadelphia, who is the same uh, professor at, at Temple, who has, of course, been arguing that Jews are white colonialists and whatnot, uh, you know, especially with the rise and the involvement of Black Lives Matter in the latest presidential election. Maybe you want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, the quote unquote Jewish whiteness and how they feel, you know, uh, you know fit into this whole uh, larger uh, environment of the class clashes that we're seeing today as regarding uh, race, culture and ethnicity uh, as it relates to uh, Jews making that case. Okay, well, I don't think any of us really want to be here until seven o'clock tonight. So, um, uh, at least, so let me try and, you know, sketch a little bit of this briefly, uh, you know, in the history of American 
in the history of America and American, the Jewish experience of, in America, Jews didn't really become white until sometime after, after World War II. And this, is, and this is, if one even accepts that this concept of whiteness is a legitimate analytical category, that they're basically the way that, that people like Hill um, and uh, Ibrahim Kendi and, and others and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement as a whole uses it is that white equals power. And that if you have power, you're part of an oppressor class. Um, and if you don't speak out against, and even if you're, even if you're black, if you have power and you don't use that power to repudiate powers, existing power structures, then you're white. Now, at a lot of levels, this doesn't make, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not an, an historical argument. It's not an anthropological argument. Um, it's, or a sociological argument. It's, it's a kind of crude, um, uh, crude Marxian sort of um, power class argument overlaid onto uh, overlaid onto American uh, a, a superficial concept uh, of American racial relations and, and distributions. And uh, you know most people don't really think that American Jews became white until the. 1950s sometime in the sense of being accepted into larger white Anglo-Saxon Protestant dominated uh, institutions and power structures like universities, like, like uh, neighborhoods um, un until, that, until that time. And um, obviously, you know, obviously there's a, uh, a kind of melanin component to this, the superficial identification of people of, of European descent with whiteness and therefore with power, which ignores all sorts of uh, historical variations between ethnic groups in Europe and nation states within Europe and, and the experiences of all these groups here, um, Italians didn't become white until the 1950s either, um, and and so on. So it's a kind of um, bizarre, instrumental, uh, superficial view of American history, of of world history, of power relationships. And um, with a kind of unclear goal state, um, some for some Black Lives Matter uh, types, it's uh, it's a, a sort of I mean the the operation in a way the, the way it's it, it plays out is a is a sort of Maoist permanent revolution framework where the revolutionary vanguard continually changes the terms or adjusts the terms of, of the complaint and the argument to keep everyone else in a constant state of flux and, accu and accusing one another. 
um, in order to gain its own uh, status within within a, a new hierarchy of of complaint complainants complainants and victims and cultural uh, cultural power and I think that that's a lot of where we're where we're at now and uh, Jews are being offered the opportunity by the Black Lives Matter movement and the theorists of of uh, of all of this whiteness and anti-whiteness. They're being offered the choice of of repudiating um, aspects of Jewishness, um, not least of all any kind of connection or affinity to Israel, um, and demonstrating it in in obvious sorts of ways. Um, in order to support the, the vague and shifting uh, power grabs by, by revo the revolutionary vanguard that's, that's pr promoting these frameworks that, do that doesn't necessarily benefit um, any kind of ch real changes within the American class structure. Um, you know, doesn't make poor people any less poor doesn't make people who are um, you know, living in areas with uh, with fewer social services doesn't necessarily give them more social services and and so on it's about power and um, and Jews and and Israel have I think quite predictably been um, roped into these kinds of discussions and arguments but th these are surprisingly predictably, lamentably widespread, and they show up in, in um, lots of different areas. So I'll give you one example that I just read about the other day. It's a, an amazing arg uh, article in Tablet Magazine about <clears throat> a, uh, a Los Angeles Facebook group that had 30,000 or so members, which had a number of administrators, and then <clears throat> one day, um, uh, which, and, and in these in these kinds of groups and settings, and in, and in many settings, not least higher education and the corporate sector as well, um, there are emerging rituals in which one, in, in order to be um, accepted by the group, is to ritually confess one's um, uh, position as a as a, a a white person and and give up that give up that power it's a kind of um self uh, process of self negation so and, and you can go to tablet and and read it but the within this group somebody had the temerity to say something positive about about israel and the woman was immediately banned from the group by the moderator and then other women were banned for complaining that this is anti-Semitic because you're, you're isolating the one, you know, the, the supporters of Israel, I think the, the uh, and accusing them of being white um, because they're supporting this, uh, this evil settler colonial oppressive um, the, the fascinating irony was that the, the, the woman or one of the women at the the origin of this whole controversy was a Korean Jewish woman from Los Angeles. And then this whole kind of group um, 
fragmented and splintered and there's complaining and, and uh, banning and unbanning. And um, so, so as with many different settings, there's a kind of uh, cultural contagion that's going on regarding these issues, whiteness uh, and, and power. That's partially uh, class-based and, um, and the, the stability of lots of institutions are, are, is being challenged because all it takes is one individual who feels that they want to set the apple cart or that um, they have a legitimate grievance or they have an illegitimate grievance. And immediately a process of sorting, particularly on the basis, uh, on the part of white people and Jewish people, then um, plays out because you have to be seen to be on the right side of, of these various issues and, and uh, the power plays. And Israel and Jews um, ragged into this. Uh, and it's, it's a, an astonishing kind of phenomenon. Um, there was another article, and I'm blanking out where it was, about, uh, about uh, the strike at Swarthmore College. No, Haverford College. Haverford College. Yeah. Haverford College, which began in September and which has more or less ended. And it's, it's as if the whole period of 1968 to 1972 was played out in a single month of takeovers and strikes and complaints and threats. And um, much of it's done virtually because that's the world that we live in now. And institutions yielding but not yielding and, uh, and, and so on. And again, where this is gonna lead, I'm not sure. I, I, am, I am sure that there will be unpredictable backlashes, not least of all in the, <clears throat> in the perception of, of, of institutions by large um, portions of the American uh, population who, who are not racist, um, but who are uh, unwilling to um, to kneel, let's say, and uh, and to to yield to this, Alex, uh, this situation. And thank you for that, Alex. And isn't there like also a question you know, apropos, you know, your comments now about the ability of the institution and and the functionality of the university that has promoted itself on the basis of diversity and clicking all these check marks and its ability to function. If anybody who does not click all these check marks uh, and, and you know, normal quote unquote, white Americans and the way Jews are perceived to be even ability to even act and to participate in the institution at large. I mean, we're seeing this and we've seen this throughout the past few months now through the rise of the cancel culture, questioning this orthodoxy. And how does the university really able to sustain all of this? I mean, the Haverford example uh, was a great example. And that was the article that was uh, in Quillet, I believe, that Jonathan right. Kay wrote right. uh, about, about describing you know what was going on there. Again, a, a 
as you and I have delved into many for many years, a Quaker institution looking to seek that kind of diversity. Uh, how do you how do these universities survive uh, in their ability to show that they are all encompassing when they're pulled only in one direction and other groups are basically told that they cannot uh, participate? Well, I think that uh, that again, a lot of this is a question of political economics, and uh, which are which are always a little bit opaque. That uh, and 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 reputational politics. If if you're an institution that has you know a multi-billion-dollar endowment, then in theory you're better positioned to resist pressures from below. On the other hand, you still have your reputation within what is very much a kind of um, uh, progressive ecosystem of American colleges and universities. Brown University could very easily have said to students um, and a couple of faculty members last year, no, we're not even going to think about divesting, get stuffed, go away, go back to class. And, and that would have been that in a way, in theory, but they didn't. And so the, the, the BDS uh, uh, resolution from a faculty student committee um, worked its way up through the organization and is now being considered by um, some group of trustees or financial committee or, or where, wherever it is. That will, that will probably not do very much of anything, um, at least not, in, not right away, not in this crisis year, I would think. Um, if you give in to the mob, uh, then then you know what you're going to get. You're going to be you're going to be run roughshod over by the mob. And on the other other hand, what we see now uh, much more broadly is corporate America eagerly adopting uh, critical race kinds of trainings and 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 um, other sorts of uh, regulatory requirements the the nasdaq won't list a company if it doesn't have x number of women or minorities on the board um, and and so on um, these kinds of anticipatory anticipatory defenses of mutation so uh, i think really the bottom line is that the bottom line doesn't matter that much um, so long as the the larger environment legitimizes um, attacks on institutions and, and structural changes on institutions, which again may or may not benefit um, minorities or other disadvantaged groups. What is clear to me, at least, and this goes back to the discussion we had a couple of weeks ago with uh, Liel Leibowitz, is that Jews are kind of at a unique disadvantage as a generally quite successful minority within American today, uh, with a distinctively unique connection to an, an ethno-national homeland in the Middle East, that they're at a multiple, there are multiple disadvantages and that in order to be 
part of campus life and campus the campus community uh, younger jews are jewish students are called upon to um, make their position clear about um, jewish so-called privilege um, regardless of whether you the individual jewish student have any come from any money or or not if if you are de facto white um, then then you are privileged and because you have some kind of connection to this um, existentially evil entity called called israel that is somehow transcendently evil it, it it has the magical power to cause police uh police violence in the united states it it abuses the indigenous population regardless of the fact that jews are the indigenous population of the of the of that territory and and so on um again logic doesn't have a lot you know facts let's say um don't have a lot to do with this but there's a certain cultural logic that's being played out in a very unfortunate way and how this ends who who has the ability to put their foot down i don't know i i think what's interesting is that uh you know by making a series of very clear declarations and using administrative power quite in a quite targeted manner that the trump administration actually helped quite a bit and uh because it um it raised legal and and ethical objections to bds and anti-semitism on campus and and uh, globally you might say and it also awakened of this it, it brought the these issues to the level of of a kind of um cultural awareness political awareness that hadn't really been existing before unfortunately because the the single overarching rule of american politics for four years has been whatever uh, trump and the administration is in favor of um, progressive and and otherwise right thinking people must 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 be against it that that these issues have been have been polarized or at least pushed pushed uncomfortably to the side um, and what will happen when when if in a biden administration um, some kind of quote unquote normal politics re-emerges i don't i don't really know the issues aren't going to go away i think that i, I think that the inclination to um you know hold jews accountable for israel regardless will emerge and the the inclination to identify jews as as being white people and therefore responsible for all the ills of american society past and future will will remain as well again the, this double disadvantage and and jews, always. right and, and and american jews um so far as i can tell uh after many years in of looking at these problems show no inclination of of changing their behavior with respect to 
to um, institutions of higher higher education for one thing, and um, they're still rather slavishly attached to to higher education, which puts them on a per which by which de facto puts them on a particular side of the American class divide, college educated versus non college educated, and to be part of the American college educated class increasingly means um, to have a, a particular narrow set of viewpoints about about Israel, about religion, about uh, uh, about states, nation states, nationalism, and and so on. And um, so we'll so, see. So for, uh, so for, on that note, we, you know, our job is uh, there's still a great deal to do. And uh, obviously, everything you said, uh, you know, highlights how much uh, the disconnect between uh, reality and uh, and the perceived reality showed within the class culture conflict that we're seeing today in North America continues. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, you know, we will have uh, a lot of work to do and to unpack uh, as we go forward. So I, um, that's, uh, you know, the, the environment we're in, which is not making uh, our case easier to make, but obviously, you know, uh, more complex involved with, uh, with politics and religiosity today that we see in, in America at large. Um, so obviously, you know, Alex, as always, I, I want to thank you uh, for the uh, for unpacking this. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, I, I know there were more questions we did not get to this afternoon, and I apologize in advance. Uh, you could always tell us at bdsmonitor at stme.org, and we will do our best to get back to you. Uh, I want to thank again everybody for joining us this afternoon. Uh, hope everybody is staying safe and healthy wherever you are. Uh, I want to thank Alex again for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Uh, be alert for our next uh, SPME webinar, and we will talk to you soon. So thank you and have a good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're located and on what coast. Everyone stay well.